If you enjoy watching college football, or if someone that you love enjoys watching college football, you've seen the State Farm insurance commercials where, I don't know who their point man is, but he's very likable and very effective, and people are telling him these personal things about their lives because they think that by doing so, they'll endear themselves to him, and they'll get the same great rate that they've seen someone else get. So the the repeated refrain is someone tells him something personal and he says to them, you don't have to be so personal. You know, everyone gets the same great rate. Well, that idea of not getting too personal, it seems like the Lord's kind of set that for a theme tonight. And, and not getting too personal is, is kind of contrary to how Scripture uh, instructs us to operate. So the testimony and tonight, the last two verses in the book of James, I think you'll, you'll find it... Um, compelling what the Lord has for us. James 5 verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The opening of the book of James, the opening of that this epistle closely parallels other uh, epistles in the New Testament, like Paul's epistles to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. They all have kind of a template where Paul identifies himself, he identifies the audience that he's writing to, and then he wishes them some blessing. For Paul, it's, it's uh, grace and peace that he wishes to each of those four churches. And James is similar. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, back in chapter 1, to the 12 tribes, that's his target audience. And then he says, uh, count it all joy. That's in place of grace and peace for James. He wishes them joy. You know, rejoice. Even though you're going through these trials, rejoice. The ending of James is, is nothing like most epistles in the New Testament. There's a sense in which uh, it ends somewhat abruptly. And then there's a sense in which it's not abrupt at all. Even in the closing to Titus, as we're going through Titus, you think about endings. Uh, Titus is, is Paul writing to one young man. And at the end of Titus, there's five verses of final greetings and instructions. And Paul says, hey, I'm going to be in Nicopolis this winter. Can you meet me there? And hey, can you take care of Zenos and Apollos and make sure that all their needs are met? And Paul says... Uh, all the Christians here send their hello to you. And, uh, you know, we want you, know, you to know that we're thinking about you. And, um, and then he wishes them grace. He wishes grace to Titus. James comes to the end and he has these two verses that just seem like he just stops. And yet I think if you, if you regard them as the last words from someone who's about to go silent, it's pretty powerful. And I think if you read them in context of what we talked about two weeks ago when Brandon walked us through the verses about the church, uh, it's consistent with a soul that is sick or discouraged, someone who's struggling spiritually, who who is weak and is calling for help. Only now we're not calling for elders to do something for someone else. It's a call for anyone in the church to be willing to do something. And and that something is that we should be ready and willing, if necessary, to chase down someone who's wandering, who's drifting away. It's not a command, is it? It's not a command. It's just presented as 
this would be a positive. If this happens and then you do this, that would be a very positive thing. It's a positive action that would yield supernatural, spiritual results. It's consistent with the overall theme in James of of demonstrating or documenting or verifying your faith through works. Not that you work your way to salvation, but that out of a sincere faith, that life bears fruit and you, you verify or you demonstrate your faith through works. And in the last two verses is talking about a work that may not always be easy. Otherwise, James says your faith is dead. So if there's one plain message of these closing verses, and I will tell you, there's some things that I thought a few times in the past weeks, I think Pastor Jim should handle these last two verses. But if there's one thing that's plain, like Pastor Begg says, the, the plain thing is the main thing. If there's one thing that's plain, it's, it's that people may stumble spiritually and that loving believers should be ready to pursue them. So let's work phrase by phrase through these closing two verses and where appropriate, make application to our lives at Suba Road. Verse 19, again, who is being addressed? James' letter is written to my brothers. The greeting suggests a familiarity with these people. Though James didn't know all of the 12 tribes scattered abroad in the dispersion, it's generally accepted that this is written to Jewish believers. Remember from the text when James begins his letter that he encourages the readers that the testing of their faith will produce endurance. Testing of faith, spiritual faith, belief. So we're talking to people of faith. James, a few verses later, suggests that because those people have a relationship with God, they have a privilege, they have a portal to ask God for wisdom. So it seems certain that these are believers a group of believers at least. And who is the one that is wandering away? Now here's where the tension is of these closing verses. Is it one type of person? Is it two types of people? What is James saying? Well, for sure, it's someone in a church gathering. We can see that in the text. Because we're talking about a group of people, again, two weeks ago, it's people who prayed for one another who had identified elders in their midst, so it seems that it's in a church setting. They, they confess their faults to one another. They sit together without regard for class distinctions. Remember chapter 2? Uh, don't say, you know, hey, you, you come here and you sit in a good place. I like you. But to the poor, you stand over there. No, we're, we, we sit together. We're, it's a church setting. Some teacher scholars are then confident that this wanderer that James names is a straying believer who needs to be nudged or convinced back into the fellowship of the church, back to the confessing of faults one to another. But other teachers, pastors, are very strong that this wanderer is someone who only professed belief in Christ. They say this because of the reference to the phrase, saving a soul from death. And they have great concern, these pastor teachers have great concern, that we not give too much credence to the idea of a Christian remaining carnal for too long. That a true believer can't ultimately remain in sin and at the same time persevere in their faith. And that's, that's hard, that's hard to wrestle with. So, 
So I believe both that God is the preserver of my faith and I believe that I'm to persevere in my faith. So, so I think we can continue to learn if, from further study of the passage, but I think we can also say that these two things are true and overlap. Christ is quoted in the Gospel of John uh, saying, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ says that we know and treasure that God is the author and finisher of our faith. But we also know that a a believer's perseverance demonstrates his faith. This is what James presses the believer to believe throughout the book. What good is it, he says in chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So I think, I think we can confidently say God is the preserver of one's faith. God is the keeper of the soul. But when a believer perseveres to the end, they demonstrate that God has been their keeper. And so there's a, there's a tension there that's a little uncomfortable and so, and I, I have I have tried to speak carefully to it because it is uncomfortable. But I think at a minimum, then you can say who is being addressed. At a minimum, you can say it is a group of professing believers in a church setting. It's a group of professing believers in a church setting. So, what what is the nature of the wandering then? If anyone wanders from the truth, what's clear here? as you read and think about the passage, is that the wandering that James speaks of is hypothetical. It's not an actual situation. There's not a a Bible character that can be named, or at least not in the way James writes it. Maybe he witnessed that, but not in the way James writes it. It's, It's hypothetical. It's not reality. Nor is it inevitable, but it is probable, given human nature. It's hypothetical, It's not inevitable, but it's probable, given human nature. And the possibility of our wandering demands humility. I think the text calls us to humility. An admission that it can happen, and that it could happen to you or to anyone. So we don't take what the the verses urge us to do lightly. We don't go too eagerly to someone. We, We take that responsibility, that urging of the Holy Spirit with a Uh, reverence and with a a sense of caution with a sense of calling but we're urged to go in the spirit of meekness to the one who's overtaken in a fault we are urged in scripture so the passage I think asks these questions kind of tacitly silently do we pray for our church body by by habit and routine asking God to keep us all from wandering because we believe that it's possible if any one of you, we believe that's possible. Do we pray for ourselves or do we consider ourselves somehow incapable now of veering at this point in our lives? Humility says you shouldn't think that way. Spiritual pride is, is a powerful deceiver and, and self-reliance can actually in the end prove to be a great reducer of humans. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed's an expression that means to watch carefully, to be careful, 
be vigilant, be on the lookout. And the word stands, he that thinks he stands in verse 12, refers to holding one's ground or being steadfast or remaining firm in one's position. Paul conveys the idea of a person who thinks he's standing firm in the faith, but in reality is overly confident and maybe self-deceived. So in the NIV, it translates, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, that you don't fall, Paul says. (laughs) The apostle Peter famously boasted of his death-defying dedication to Christ. Lord, I am ready to go with you. Prison, death, I mean, Peter was the guy. He was the man. Jesus' reply was sobering. I tell you, Peter, that before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. In other words, take heed, Peter, lest you fall. Do we even pray for our pastors with a sense of caution for their souls, or do we overlook them because of their office? No, James says, if anyone of you. So, so there's a humility, humility inherent in this idea of wandering. The nature of wandering also suggests there's an individual, individuality. These things happen. A person wanders out of that individual's choices. In chapter 1, James tells us we can't blame other people for our failures or for our sliding away, can we? We, we, we want to. Often, people get embittered and they leave churches and there's always someone to blame. James says what? In chapter 1, he says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. In the ESV, it translates, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. No one can walk away from church fellowship and blame their drifting away on someone who hurt them or on the church leadership's decisions or on another church member who disappointed them by wandering and falling themselves. You can't pin your own spiritual struggles on someone else. I can't pin my own spiritual struggles on someone else. There's an individuality about it. There's also an anonymity about this possibility of wandering. More than one pastor, teacher suggests that this wandering might be behavioral or doctrinal, either one. One's behavioral choices might lead into sin and then into shame, and then to a desire to live in anonymity, which distances them from their church family. It could be a gradual disinterest in the Bible or in attending services. It could be moral wandering, but there's a desire to become anonymous. It can also be doctrinal, and sometimes one preacher said that change in doctrine goes hand in hand with a desire to justify the behavior that they want to engage in. So they say, I no longer think of God in this way like I used to. And so their revised view of God makes room for them to do what they want to do. James said in chapter 1 that God of his own will gave us life by the word of truth. And so of this phrase, wandering from the truth, D. Edmund Hebert writes that, quote, generally the, the truth, the truth means or denotes the whole body of truth as contained in the gospel. So any wandering from truth, the truth, involves the loss of a vital relationship with him, Christ, our Redeemer. Doctrinal wandering, behavioral wandering. And then this last phrase, long phrase, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I don't know. 
preachers I listened to and read didn't know for sure. Just let him know. Is that the one who is pursued or the one doing the pursuing? I'm not sure that's the main thing or the plain thing. This same encouragement to act also suggests a possible futility if we do nothing. A multitude of sins, a layering on of consequence and results of sin and detriment is certain. And a situation is hopeless if no one in the church acts at all when the Lord prompts them to. While a person's choices can leave scars, however, damage control can take place the sooner one acts and attempts to chase down the wanderer. We had a pastor, when we were in grad school in Mississippi, we had this pastor who I remember saying more than once in his folksy way, if Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put him back together again, you can be confident that God can still come along and make a beautiful omelet out of that person. (laughs) Never forgotten that. (laughs) I probably forgot a lot of of deeper things that he taught us. I think back to some situations here at Suber over the years where it would have been better in retrospect if people had spoken up carefully and humbly to this or that situation. But I think they were trying to balance their concern with what Paul, Paul says, his, Paul describes it as believing all things, loving believer, believes all things, gives people the benefit of the doubt, but... Sometimes it takes a lot of prayer for the believer to balance courage and wisdom, believing all things, and actually identifying that they see something that's troubling. And I I can think to some situations where it would have been better in the end if people had spoken up and maybe there had been some caution lent to uh, some wandering. What about the phrase, save a soul from death? Isn't that God's domain only? We know that we can't change the heart of a wandering friend, but we should also know that God uses humans to save humans. Each soul that comes to Christ in salvation is the product of often more than one human's effort to point them to the cross. Paul speaks in his letters of one planting, someone else coming along and watering, but God in the end giving the increase. It's more than one human involved. Dr. Piper likens God using us to save the soul of this wanderer from death to a lumberjack felling a tree with an axe. If there's no lumberjack, the tree isn't coming down. But the lumberjack does use an axe to accomplish his purpose. So there's a sense in which if there's no axe, the tree isn't coming down. Because I realize it's a little different when we're talking about God Almighty who could, if he willed to, could bring that tree down with one glance of his laser-like Shekinah glory, but, but you, get the, you get the illustration. God uses people to go after people. God uses people in evangelism. God uses people in restoration. We said, that, um, we said earlier that James' admonition was not a command, but it's, a, it's a, maybe a supposition of, a, of the best-case scenario when someone wanders, that this can happen if we will act. Fellowship of believers in a church and involvement in a local church ministry is one of God's means of grace to, to people. And so people willing to act um, is an important thing. James' admonition, maybe it's not a command, and, and maybe now at the end of the, of the chapter, it's, it's neither is it a closing guarantee 
that the wanderer will come back, but it's something that we should be willing to do. I remember going with a different pastor in Mississippi that we had a little change in pastor uh, in, in our little church in the three years we were there. It seems like a different lifetime now. But I remember going with my pastor in Mississippi to confront a young husband in our church who was involved with another woman and was leaving his wife and children. So the very first Christmas we were there in Hattiesburg, this, this guy was involved in the church, and he had served as narrator for this little cantata we put together. We had a, a grand choral ensemble of 12, three to part, and it was, it was awesome. We were all thrilled with what the Lord helped us to do, and this guy served as narrator, and I think there was some sense that he, he was trying to struggle to do right, and him just being involved and the heartfelt and skillful way he narrated this cantata was such an encouragement to the church family. But a year later, he's involved with another woman and is wanting to leave his wife and children. And so I went with Pastor to confront this guy at his work, and he was willing to come outside and talk to us. And I remember my pastor was at the same time um, kind and yet direct. He was compassionate, but he was strong in his warnings. And yet in the end, that young husband did not repent. He didn't come back. I can also remember the first time I ever personally witnessed church discipline. I heard about it growing up, but I never witnessed church discipline until I was a young married man here at Subaru Road when the church was Emmanuel Baptist, that little white church that's diagonal across Wade Hampton from Mr. Salsa. And it was in that building. I remember how sobering it was for the lead deacon to publicly lay out charges that were stated kindly but directly and firmly and and now this young husband in our own church here in, in the upstate was leaving his wife and his children. And, and so the church was acting in church discipline. And in that situation, praise the Lord, he did come back. And uh, they, they continued on in their marriage and they, they were restored. And um, thankfully they went on together at least for a while. I, we lost track of them. But I don't think it's too strong to say that... We are fools to not welcome this kind of accountability that these last two verses push us lovingly toward. We're fools to not want it. To not desire this kind of kind pursuit of our souls. We're crazy. I, I think of some who over time have left Subaru Road and have said things like, we don't need people checking on us. Well, actually, you do. <laughs> I do. We do. We all do. Maybe what they were actually saying was it, it hurt their pride when someone checked up on them. I think of the testimony of another faithful young couple that now they're in ministry in another state. And when they were here, the congregation, they said, would not, the Subaru Road congregation would not let go of them. If they missed one Sunday, for, for any reason, legitimate or not, the congregation was all over them lovingly checking on them. Where, where were you? We missed you. Everything okay? And they, they said, you know, they didn't resent that. They recognized that that helped them. And, and they speak with great gratitude for that now, for the influence of that care. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May the Lord give us grace to do what we're hearing. Let's pray together now. 
Lord, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would take your word and impress it deeply into our hearts. Help us to receive your word with humility and the instruction of it. And Lord, grant us the courage if there is someone in our lives that we see uh, even now wandering or, or that you would prep us for the time when we see someone wandering, that we would have the courage and the loving compassion to pursue them in the way that's described here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you that he wrote these things with such practical um, sense of balance, Lord. Help us to get these and help us to master them the best we can in our spiritual walk. In Jesus' name, amen.